So again, uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see uh, a lot of familiar faces and also some uh, faces of people whom, whom I don't know. Um, I'm going to be continuing with this larger series of explorations about ways of deepening our practice during the pandemic, during what could be called uh, multiple pandemics, you know, the kind of the multiple challenges, the multiple um, larger crises that we're all in the midst of. I think uh, maybe not in the same way if you live in Canada with all of them, but certainly in the U.S. we have these uh, multiple uh, challenges or crises of the pandemic, of uh, racial justice, economic issues, climate issues, crisis of democracy. Uh, you know, we probably could add a few local ones as well, but that's, that's a lot for us to work with. And so uh, our practice really becomes a, a tremendous resource. And we've been looking for a number of sessions at a lot of different dimensions of our practice. Um, as I've done in the past, I want to point to the way that I'm conceiving of practice in a broad way as including our own uh, inner practice, what we might do particularly in uh, formal practice, but then can bring out into other parts of our lives. Also our more uh, relational practice, uh, being with others, and then our practice in terms of uh, participating in the larger world. And of course that's a simple distinction of the three. In reality, they all interpenetrate each other. You know, and to do inner work is often to work with one's own social conditioning, for example. And so it's not so easy to distinguish the three, but it's helpful to name them. So there's a, a broad sense of practice. So we've been uh, keeping that broader vision of practice as we've looked into a lot of different areas so far. The recordings from the past meetings are on the website uh, Dharma Seed. Uh, .org, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org. And we've looked at themes like mindfulness of the body, working with reactivity, uh, working with intentions, connecting uh, our more formal practice with our more relational practice. And now we're in a period of time looking at the nature of skillful speech. How do, we, how do we practice uh, wise speech? And I gave several sessions where we looked at what um, could be called the foundations of wise speech, looking at the ethical guidelines that the Buddha gave for being truthful, helpful, coming out of a good heart, even with difficult situations, and... Uh, having a certain appropriateness of the speaking, including good timing. Uh, we looked also at the value of developing an ability to be present during speech, and then also the quality of empathy. Uh, I'm calling those three broad areas the foundational areas. And then in the last uh, two sessions, we've looked at the question of how do we work with um, challenges in our speech and communication practice? How do we work with 
difficulties that arise. And two times ago, I asked people to put into the chat uh, some of what they find challenging in uh, speech practice. And I, I, I have those before me. I named them also last time. So I'll just name uh, probably most of these. And, and they're really, they really actually are all, they're not just challenges of speech, they're challenges of relationship. Uh, here's one, it's difficult for me when, uh, when I write the script for the other person, pretty much telling the other person what to do. Of course, I don't always let the other person know the script, <laughs> but it's still my script. Uh, others that we looked at last time, uh, when I experience challenging or deep or difficult emotions, like particularly fear or anxiety, uh, anger, uh, lack of a confidence in my ability to actually communicate what's important for me in the context of the communication. Sometimes the emotional tone of the other. Uh, I don't, another one, I'm afraid of upsetting the other person. Another one, when, when I don't get feedback, verbal or nonverbal, from the other person, when there could be something like what we sometimes call stonewalling, and the other person just doesn't really share anything that's happening. Uh, when the other person is um, acting in a distracted way when communicating with me, like texting or uh, otherwise having the attention not with me entirely. Uh, another one is when, when uh, there's a, ch a big emotional charge. Another one was in when I'm speaking in a language which is not my primary language and I don't feel as uh, able to articulate what's important. So I'm wondering, what are there a few others that you could name? Maybe that came up in the last week. Some other challenges that you want to name in our speaking practice, in our communications with others. So let's open up the chat, uh, Corlita, for the moment. And just uh, let's, uh, if, you, if you want to add something, a uh, challenge that's there for you related to communication, practicing wise speech, put it in the chat right now and we'll read uh, several of them. And Carlita, you can read them if they're coming through right now. Okay, we have when another is trying to make me wrong or put me on the defensive. Yeah. Uh, why is speech went out the window during last night's debate? Uh, <laughs> power imbalances. Power, dismissiveness. Yeah. I find speaking wisely in public to many people can be quite challenging. Yeah. And then there's a note, I have been going in and out of despair due to local and world conditions, but I don't want to burden my spouse. Yeah. When I am taken by surprise, I didn't know I was going to be having a difficult conversation. Yeah, yeah. Great, maybe one, one or two more? Uh, let's see here. When I get triggered... Or when I say something that the other places another meaning upon it that I didn't mean. Yeah. When I feel unloved. 
Yeah, great. Um, not not great that it's one feels on love, but uh, we're we're naming really important areas. And Carlita, would it be possible again to put uh, everything in the chat and send it to me? Absolutely, that'd I'll be, save that chat right now. Yeah, that'd be very very useful. Great. So again, how many can relate to one or more of what was named? You know, in in that in that chat. Yeah. So I think it's almost almost everyone. So, yeah, I also, uh, I had the full intention last night to watch the presidential debate for an hour and a half. And uh, perhaps like some of you, uh, uh, because of the level of interruptions that were occurring, I actually, it became unwatchable. And I actually turned it off after just six or seven minutes. Wow. Uh, and uh, I don't know how many had an uh, experience similar to that, something like that. It was it was very hard. I heard someone counted it. There were uh, at least the, the the main interrupter or almost uh, was the uh, current president, and I think there were 128 interruptions in uh, 90 minutes. Uh, and of course, if you calculate into the times when he had the floor. It probably is something like an interruption every 30 seconds, right? So we could add that to our uh, list of difficult uh, communication uh, experiences. Um, so two times ago, I think, I gave uh, eight general suggestions for how to be skillful uh, when there are challenges. Or how to be skillful, yeah, when there are difficult or challenging speech situations. And so what I'll do is I'll name those, and then I'll go further into what I uh, did last time. So I named uh, I named eight qualities or eight eight capacities, I should say. Um, one of the, very important one is touch base with your core intention. Very very fundamental to touch base with the intention. It might be the intention to learn that could be there. It could be the intention to have a connection with the other person. Really see what the main intention is. And especially if we can have some sense of taking everything as a learning experience, that is the spirit of practice, not easy to maintain, you know, and, and to, uh, Really, um, really see if one can hold that sense of wanting to learn from the situation. That doesn't dictate at all what one does, but holding that intention. There could be skillful actions when I have had the deep intention to learn, <coughs> and I decide it's actually better to break off communication with that person. So it doesn't dictate what we do. But touching base with our core intention permits this mysterious learning process to occur. There's a line uh, that a friend of mine reminded me of a few days ago from a poem by the Spanish poet uh, Antonio Machado. Uh, he says, in our souls, everything moves guided by a mysterious hand. So a lot of what we're learning, we don't always know what we're learning. In fact, as many people say, we don't know what we don't know. 
right? And so there can, but but to trust in that learning, very fundamental. And then the second through the fourth uh, capacities are to work with those foundations. Remember the foundations of wise speech. Remember the ethical guidelines I just named. Remember the quality of being present, you know, not being caught so much in the thoughts or the narratives. Uh, developing empathy. And, you know, I think we'll work, especially next time, we'll go back to empathy uh, because today I'm going to focus on continuing uh, how do we do inner work with the challenging situations, challenging relational situations. I'll focus more on inner work uh, for a second time today and then focus uh, on the more how do we practice in a relational setting uh, next time. So the fifth and sixth are what we looked at last time. The fifth is basically uh, do inner work with what comes up during the challenging speech situation, which can mean doing inner work outside of the uh, situation. You know, if anger comes up, we might work with that anger. Uh, anxiety comes up, being judgmental comes up. There are ways we can work with all of that outside. The sixth capacity is to actually know and study one's own conditioning around being with difficult speech situations. This might mean, for example, a um, tendency to be avoidant of conflict. You know, uh, a kind of fear of conflict, conflict avoidance, which could lead one to shy away or to shut down when their difficult things come up. You know, to be basically freaked out. You know, and I know that was my conditioning, right? Um, and that's probably, you know, in, in meditative circles, that tends to be the primary conditioning. There are a certain percentage of people who grew up in, um, in families and cultural contexts where the conditioning um, was to be just let it rip with conflicts, right? You know, just to say whatever was there, to let it all out, to be quite loud with conflicts. And that's not necessarily more skillful, but it's good to know that that's the conditioning. I experienced that some conditioning some when I lived for, I think, about a year in Boston, in uh, Little Italy, with a lot of people, recently working-class immigrants from Italy, well, they were not conflict-avoidant, right? They were not conflict-avoidant. In the summer, the windows were open, a lot of apartment buildings. You knew if there was a conflict in apartment six. <laughs> because you could hear it, right? And it was not hidden at all. And some of you, some of us may have grown up in those kind of households. Again, I'm not, one's not better than the other. They both can be deep conditioning where we're caught in patterns. But knowing one's conditioning, knowing if we uh, are engaged in what's called spiritual bypassing, that's what we looked at a lot last time as well. And then the seventh and the eighth are, uh, the seventh is keep in mind to try to meet the needs of all concerned. And that's what I'll, I'll come back to that next time, I think. And then eighth, uh, uh, practice, do role plays, do rehearsals, maybe with friends of difficult speech situations. You know, um, my colleague, Oren J. Sofer, Oren's teaching the event on the weekend. Uh, we teach wise speech retreats and he teaches uh, classes on wise speech a lot. And we like to do role plays. 
where we, uh, in fact, uh, during our longer retreats, we made we actually do a few days of role plays, which can be very, very instructive. So last time I focused on uh, on um, the more inner practice that we can do in relation to what comes up, and I I looked about looked at uh, as I mentioned looked at the way that we might be engaged, uh, we might be caught by our conditioning, so we actually can't really do the inner work very well. So some of what we need to do is to look at that conditioning about, uh, you know, about conflict avoidance. And one way to work with that is just to see what comes up, to notice, you know, maybe, oh, gosh, or feel one's body. You know, again, I know this very well because I was brought up with that conditioning to be conflict avoidant. Again, many of us were. And it can be a kind of almost like a almost like a, a shutting down when there's a conflict or something difficult coming up. A kind of shutting down. It's it's not even very conscious. It's not. But you might notice that there are thoughts, you know, like oh gosh, why are we doing this again or whatever. And it's um, you know how to work with that conditioning. I think it's to find relatively low-level conflicts and commit to working with them. That's one way to work with it. Another might be to actually do inner work with the difficult emotions which come up during conflicts. Could be, again, anger, fear, anxiety. Yeah, look to whether, again, there's a spiritual bypassing tendencies to that. You know, uh, I'm spiritual. I don't get angry. When difficulties come up, I just let go. I'm spiritual. I practice the spirit rock. Okay. Or your version of that, right? And so these are these are tendencies that are shared, and some of them are actually shared on a broader cultural level. There have been historically uh, many challenges for many Buddhist uh, meditation centers in actually dealing with conflicts that, are, that arise in their communities, in our communities. So these are not just individual experiences, but they become cultural and systemic, right? And um, so that's one area. And then we also, we also looked at doing the inner work with when, when uh, when difficult communication situations come up. And that's what I want to uh, look at. I was intending last week to complete that, you know, and I looked at, looked at anger some, but I, I didn't complete it. And so I want to spend a little bit of time today with anger, also a little bit of time with fear, a little bit of time with the judgmental mind, and then some on what occurs in, uh, at the level of the body, right? And so the inner work that we can do, and again, here the, the starting point is, is that, we, especially with ongoing relationships, where we come back, could be a work situation or family situation, partner or friend, ideally, we have a way of continually doing the inner work and then bringing that into the relationship. And I mentioned last time that one model would be that everyone involved is doing both inner work and trying to be skillful with speech and communication. That doesn't always happen. 
but I can do my inner work and make a commitment to practice skillful speech as best I can. And so uh, there's a very important place for doing, as it were, one's own work, separate from the time one's in relationship. When one does that inner work, ultimately, one can also bring in that inner work in the actual moments of the relationship. If I have done a lot of inner work with my own anger and know what to do with that, or when you know my body gets flooded physiologically and I learn how to be more skillful with that, if I've done a certain amount of inner work, I can then actually bring it into the moment-to-moment uh, -moment experience with the other person or with the group. And I can actually say, okay, I've practiced that grounding my body when it starts to feel a little bit jittery. Let me do that right now. But, but it presupposes often that we do the inner work separately. So there's a real place for that. And again, we have, we have our various practices of mindfulness, of uh, the heart practices like loving kindness. We have practice I gave last time, uh, the dropping down practice, which I'll come back to, where we move from the level of thoughts and narratives into the body to see often what's beneath the surface. We have, uh, we have the wisdom teachings about the nature of reactivity and so forth. So we have a lot of resources that we, we can work with. And again, the, the model here that I'm suggesting is of a combination of, of skillful inner work and skillful outer work. That's, I think, what we, and I think it's what the world deeply, deeply needs. People who are very skillful in an inner way, but then also have developed skills relationally and even in the, the larger social world. You know, I found, uh, found a very nice quote. I don't think I've given this from, some of you know, the work of Angel Kyoto Williams, who uh, was a co-author of the book called Radical uh, Dharma. And she said this, this is more in the context of the relation of inner work and social change, but I think it's also very relevant to uh, our relational lives. She said, for us to transform as a society, we have to allow ourselves to be transformed as individuals. And for us to be transformed as individuals, we have to allow for the incompleteness of any of our truths and a real forgiveness for the complexity of human beings and what, we, what we've trapped uh, inside of and what we're trapped inside of so that we're both able to respond, for example, to oppression, the suppression that we're confronted with, the aggression we're confronted with, but we're able to do that with a deep and abiding sense of, and these are people, human beings, that are at the other end of the baton, the stick, the policy, that are also trapped in something. They're also trapped in suffering. And for sure, we can witness that there are ways that they're benefiting from it, but there are also ways, if one trusts the human heart, that they must be suffering. And holding that at the core of who you are when responding to things, I think that's the way. The only way we really have going forward to not just replicate systems of oppression for the sake of our own causes. So again, on a relational level, that means this is the only way, not simply to get, you know, to try to do inner practice so we can just get our way. 
or win the argument, right? That we're actually looking for, again, this goes back to the intention, some sort of connection with the other, under mutual understanding, reconciliation, collaboration. Again, that's not always possible, but that can be the aspiration, right? And again, doing our own inner work is necessary for that even to be a possibility. So very, very crucial. So we have to, we have to work with that shared intention. And again, this is not easy at all. There's a nice line from the poet William Butler Yeats who said, to look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier on a battlefield. To look at oneself unflinchingly takes more courage than a soldier on the battlefield. So last time we looked at working with anger, and I want to go over that briefly, then go to the experiences of working with fear, working with uh, the judgmental mind, and with what comes up in the body. And these are all very much interrelated. And so, and I think with each of those areas, we probably could take multiple sessions to explore more deeply anger or fear or the judgmental mind. Those of you interested, there's seven-day retreat on that one, <laughs> right? So, uh, or, or how, to, how to work with the body in challenging situations. So last time I, I mentioned uh, my own retreat some time ago uh, when I was angry for virtually uh, 15 hours a day for 10 days in a row. This came from someone with conflict avoidance as conditioning. And uh, I was able, you know, this was after some development, but there was an ability to be mindful. And again, this goes back to something I mentioned last time, that in working with doing inner work, with particularly with difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, difficult uh, body states, it's very crucial to ascertain, to know uh, when one's practicing mindfulness, what is the level of intensity? And I use that scale of one to 10. Often when it's a nine or a 10, we kind of know what's happening, but actually it's very hard to be mindful and sometimes even impossible. And we can think we're being mindful, but we're actually probably strengthening the old patterns. And so there are different approaches that we have when we have a nine or a 10. There we do what we need to do to come back to balance. We don't necessarily use mindfulness. It's a really, really key point. And again, I, I think I mentioned last time how many people sometimes have traumatic activation on retreats, think they're practicing mindfulness, but they're actually lost in it and in a sense re-traumatizing themselves. So it's really crucial initially to ascertain what's the level of intensity. And we, what we want to find is the workable range. What we, what we want to find is where it's possible to be mindful, maybe not all the time, but where we're not simply lost in the difficult emotion, the difficult thought, the difficult body state. And they're, they're usually all come together with the really intense ones. So make that, make that assessment really, really crucial. Then we can actually be mindful. Then we can be mindful and notice, for example, anger. And sometimes it actually can be skillful when we're doing inner work. Sometimes it will just naturally come up because the event happened yesterday, right? And it's very, very alive. 
you know, who are in my retreat where I was angry for 10 days in a row. I think I mentioned last time I was actually angry at, uh, this, at the meditation uh, retreat teachers and at the whole setup of the retreat. And I was just angry. And, um, you know, Jack Kornfield is one of the teachers and he guided me and he said, I have some, I have some sympathy with what you're angry about. Because I, I was angry about, hey, you know, gosh, uh, um, we should be doing things which help us to really connect us more with daily life. And we're just being treated like we're monks or nuns, but we're not. Right? And so I don't know if anyone's had that, but I had, I, it was kind of a little bit strange for me because it was a retreat. It was not my first retreat. I had been on similar retreats and not gotten angry about that at all. But here it was. It suddenly came up, partly, I think, because I had been living for before, right before that retreat for about seven years, living in the middle of the country in Ohio and Kentucky. I was teaching, and I was really focusing on daily life. Yeah, and maybe it was that. But in any case, he was sympathetic, but he, the, the, the anger was right there. So sometimes it'll be right there. We don't have to go find it, and then we can bring the mindfulness to it. Sometimes it actually can be helpful to bring it up deliberately. We don't usually do that in our mindfulness practice, but it can be helpful, again, if it's in the workable range, to deliberately bring up the situation. And we did that last time. Bring up the situation uh, that I'm angry about. Maybe bring to life a conversation for a minute, something like what I had yesterday, that I became angry. Feel, you know, that, have that experience as if we're reliving it, and then bring mindfulness to what's there. We did a version of that last time, uh, which, I, which I work especially with the judgmental mind up, but that sometimes can be skillful. In other words, bring the experience to mind and then do mindfulness. Again, watch out if you're if there's overwhelm or if we're trapped in it. And so in looking at something like anger, we could see that, uh, I, you know, in my report about anger, I could see that, um, well, there might, be, uh, there might be a significant amount of truth in what I was angry about, but it's still really important to be mindful. Bring attention to the body, bring attention to the emotions, Notice the narrative. It doesn't matter if I have some truth on my side. Uh, because what's... Because um, I can have truth on my side and act in the relational context extremely unskillfully and cause a lot of harm, right? So having truth on one side, at least in part... Uh, doesn't give the green light, as it were, for anything goes, right? Sometimes we think it does. But it, it uh, so we want to be careful about that when we're sort of hooked by our own self-righteousness, right? And it can be very valuable to bring mindfulness to what's there, feel it in the body. What's anger like in the body? Could be fire, could be heat, could be even some shaking. Notice what it's like in terms of emotional energy. Notice what the thoughts are. And then I gave the special suggestion with anger. Stay with the anger and notice what happens when it changes. Again, many psychologists point to the way that anger can cover over 
other emotions, particularly sadness or some degree of pain. And we looked into that some last time. And so if you stay with mind, the mindfulness of anger enough, one can sometimes notice what's beneath the anger. Sometimes one can notice, oh, there's some pain. Oh, I'm sad that happened, right? We can use the anger sometimes to kind of defend ourselves against feeling that pain. That's why the inner work is really crucial. And, and then, you know, I mentioned last time that in my retreat, which was, you know, probably, I don't know, over a hundred hours of mindfulness of anger, right? I'm not wishing that on you, but if it occurs, there's learning possible. Anyway, for me, uh, I noticed after a while that the anger would sometimes give way to sadness and the sadness would sometimes give way to love. So that actually the whole energy of anger was ultimately rooted in love. That was pretty amazing to know. It also gives a suggestion for the importance of working with anger because if you can, because if we get caught in anger sometimes, we can get caught in being self-righteous, polarized and everything. But if we actually do the inner work, we can touch the love and actually compassion. It's a very different place to be coming from. That would be the result of a lot of inner work. And so then I wanted to mention some about working with fear. Actually very, very similar. Um, That we can uh, really explore fear. I wanted to bring in a poster that I have actually on my study wall. I, I took it down. This is it. It's from the Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont. I lived in Vermont for a few years once. Bread and Puppet Theater, amazing place. And this is one of their performances. The, can you read the print? The story of one who set out to study fear. I love that, right? Would you like to be the one who set out to study fear? And it's, it's amazing. I also, there's a, from the uh, Sufi Islamic tradition, the Hafiz says, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions, <laughs> right? And so again, uh, we want to check out when there's fear, what's the level of intensity? Again, keep coming back to that. Some levels of fear, we um, are too much. We want to work with it. Uh, but sometimes we can work with it. I don't, and I, I don't know what my karma is. I also had another retreat. This was only, I think, about seven days long where I had fear almost the entire time. This is my own particular karma. I've had retreats, anger retreats, fear retreats, judgmental mind retreats. And they, luckily, everything was in the workable range. It wasn't mostly overwhelming. So I got to study it. It was amazing. You know, the fear retreat was uh, actually somewhat early on in my practice. But I got to be mindful of fear. And so we get to see what we're fearful of. You know, we get to see the content of the fear. We get to see, um, you know, you know, maybe you can even uh, put in the chat, what are some of the things we're afraid of? Just write a, a word or two. What are we afraid of? And Carlita, you can read them as they come in. Certainly. So the first one is 
uh, afraid when someone is upset with me. Yep. I'll feel shame and humiliation. It's really hard to be present with that in the moment. And so afterward, I withdraw from the person and hide, sometimes for a long time. Yep. Uh, another of, one yep. is fear of fire, fear of not being safe, fear of the election's outcome, yep. fear of other people. Uh, fear connected to being vulnerable or showing my own personal intimacy, fear of losing relationships, fear I won't be accepted or liked, a fear of dying in pain, fear of being put down, fear of climate change, uh, fear of insults. Maybe one more. Fear of becoming destitute. Fear of becoming destitute. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Carlita, but I think no one mentioned what might be the big one, which is fear of death. Yeah. Uh, There was one on dying, uh, right? Yeah. Painful dying. Painful dying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So actually, when when people, when there's studies made, people are more afraid of dying, the dying process, than of death. That's that's very interesting. But in any case, there are a lot of things we're afraid of, and fear, again, in itself can have some intelligence, can have some insight, some some truth, as it were, that there can be some uh, clarity. Okay, there's a dangerous situation, get out of there, right? So again, this is something, how do we we preserve what's skillful or what's helpful with anger or fear or other difficult emotions and see what actually is not so helpful? So what's not so helpful could be the, you know, the way that fear could be paralyzing, that it could be confusing or um, lead to uh, reactivity or overreaction, right? And so, again, can be very valuable in our inner practice to do something like this inner work with emotions like fear or anxiety, to be with it, see what happens in the body. A lot of times fear has very strong a bodily expression could be um, a sense, you know, could be uh, localized in the chest. We could have a sense of constriction, the chest caving in, could be in the belly. A lot of people have the experience of fear manifest a tightness in the belly. It could be, uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, tension in the stomach area. It could be a sense of being frozen, right? So we want to bring the mindfulness to the body. We want to bring uh, mindfulness to the emotions, what's connected, and especially, I think, to what's going on in the mind. What we'll notice is the repetition. Something also very important to notice, which is obvious, one of those obvious things not always noticed, is that the fear is about the future. It's almost never about the present moment. Right, And so one of the ways to work with fear is to actually experience fear in the present moment and become much like a mountain climber who knows fear very well. In a sense, learn to be friends with the fear. So a mountain climber doesn't end fear, but the mountain climber learns not to be uh, reactive to the fear or freaked out by the fear or locked into the narrative, right? Okay, there's fear. It's realistic. I'm, you know, climbing and I'm uh, 100 feet above the ground, 
okay? Some fear is natural, but can I be with the fear and use my wisdom, see what's there, and be skillful? That's what we're looking for with all of this inner work. And with fear and anxiety, we want to see particularly how we get caught by narratives. And we, re we repeat them over and over again and get locked into them in, in, in certain ways. So a lot more we could say. We're going to say more about this in that Friday evening talk that I'm doing with uh, Cyrus Smith. So maybe, maybe I'll, well, I have a poem about fear. You want to hear a poem about fear? Okay, here it is. This is by Mark Nepo. It's called The Thing About Fear. We try to avoid it, distract ourselves, even put, uh, put others in the way, because it makes what is necessary seem monumental. Yet when we stumble over the line, or are loved over the line in our um, exhaustion, let me see where, oops. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, it looks like my printer didn't print the, la the rest of my talk. Uh-oh. Okay, but I think I know what to say. Okay, and so I think what, he, what uh, Mark Nepo was going to say, hmm, that's a little bit strange. Yep. Okay. Um, am I afraid right now because I don't have my trusty notes? I don't seem to be. If I were, I could follow my own guidance and do mindfulness of fear. But I don't seem to be. But what's um, uh, what the poem is pointing to, actually, is that fear often, if it occurs in a similar way, is pointing to what uh, comes next in our learning. Jack Kornfield once said something very similar. He said, Fear is pointing to what you need to learn, right? And it's very interesting so that we can actually, again, take fear as something to be studied and appreciated. The key with all of this is to study it enough so that we get more and more familiar with it. We're not paralyzed by it. It doesn't touch our various uh, buttons of reactivity, right? And so we want to be aware of what it's like in the body, what, it's, what the narratives are, and also notice how it changes when it changes. And again, so let me say a few words also about another way that we can do very important inner work. This is with the judgmental mind. That, again, these are very related to fear and anger, but we often can get caught in narratives judging the other person and part of the inner work with the judgmental mind also is about what we do when we have the judgments coming towards us that was named in some of the uh, issues or the challenges with uh, with fear and also with uh, difficult situations in general involving communication and uh, I define the judgmental mind as a mixture of some kind of noticing or discernment with reactivity, a very important definition. And so again, 
I can be uh, I can be very judgmental about this politician or my friend or myself, and I may be noticing something quite important. I can be judgmental about this injustice and so forth. I can notice something very important that actually has a certain truth value. And when I'm judgmental, I'm also reactive. It's the reactivity which will tend to, in a sense, uh, poison what I do with it because I'm reactive and my intention is often simply to push away. Sometimes it, it results actually in hurting the other or harming the other. And so if that's what the judgmental mind is, I can think again of, you know, uh, a colleague of mine, someone I work with, didn't keep a work agreement, and I'm very judgmental. Well, I notice something really important, but I can be very reactive about it and just say, oh, that person's untrustworthy, uh, that person is clearly inadequate, you know, and so forth. And uh, I may be accurate about what happened, but the, the, the judgmental mind is caught in reactivity. What the inner work with the judgmental mind is about is separating out whatever is insightful or helpful about the, from the judgment, from the reactivity, and then using whatever is helpful or insightful or important, like the fact that the person didn't keep the agreement, for the purposes of compassionate action. That's the formula, right? So I need to do inner work to uh, separate out the insight from the reactivity. In some cases, the judgmental mind doesn't have so much insight, but a lot of times it does. And so it's very important. So the inner work is done in three broad areas. One is the mindfulness of the judgmental mind. The second is bringing in the heart practices of loving kindness, compassion, sometimes forgiveness. And these are valuable for all of these difficult inner states. And then the third is doing deeper inquiry to see what is driving or beneath the judgment. Because a lot of them are repetitive, particularly if I judge myself, judge another. And sometimes we can see deeper patterns of, of the judgment. So again, we want to first ascertain the level of intensity. Sometimes the judgmental mind is too strong. If it's in the workable range, Mindfulness, really, really helpful. Again, we can sometimes deliberately bring it up like we did in the exercise last time. Be with the judgmental mind. See what it's like. What's it like in the body? What's the narrative? Come to see this. Get really familiar, particularly with the ones which are most repetitive. Okay? Um, and then doing that inner work, we can sometimes come to a place where I can separate out the reactivity so that I'm in a place to actually say to the person, non-reactively, and as we'll look into this more next time, you know, uh, I thought we had an agreement. Uh, and I noticed that uh, yesterday uh, you did this. And to me, that wasn't, you know, you didn't keep the agreement in my mind. And I'm wondering what your experience was and whether whether that's the case for you. So I can... You know, there are different things I can say, but I can approach the difficult situation non-reactively, often only because I've done the inner work with it. So there's this tremendous place for inner work. Again, the last area I was going to mention, I'll do it briefly, is that sometimes all of this manifests a little bit more in the body. And it can be valuable to have a repertoire of body practices where we, uh, we may 
Uh, again, first notice the level of intensity. If it's in the workable range, we can do something like ground in the body, feel the feet, feel the hands, maybe feel the whole body. That can sometimes be helpful when there is a difficult uh, body state. If there's anything like uh, traumatic activation, that's very important to know that. And sometimes we have to do a lot of inner work with the trauma. You know, and that can be done especially with professionals or with people who are guides in that way. Uh, if there's trauma, they're also in the moment, there are things that can be helpful, which is to bring the attention to something very positive in the environment. It actually changes the way the brain is working. Feel the hands, feel the feet, feel a place which is emotionally neutral. That can be very helpful when there, when there is uh, activation. You know, later on, we can do something like take a walk, do something like qigong, which stabilizes the body energy. So I could say more there, but I want to finish with a poem, which luckily I didn't put in my notes, but I brought the actual book. Okay, so this, I want to end with this poem from, this is from around 1920 from the, the poet uh, Rilke, translated by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy. This is the last of the sonnets to Orpheus. And it's really about this working with inner, inner challenges. Quiet friend who has come so far, feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like such intensity of pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses, the meaning discovered there. And if the world has ceased to hear you, Say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water, speak, I am. Let's just stay in silence for a moment and see what was resonant, what came up for you related to the talk, any of the material. Let's open up now for discussion. You could either share something, could uh, ask a question, you could use the raise hand function under participants, or you could, if you don't want to uh, speak out your own comment or question, you could uh, put it into the chat and Carlita would read it for you. Anything to ask or to share? Again, we're looking at the way that in challenging relational settings, 
is a very important place for combining inner work and outer response. And if that the if there are sort of relationships of some duration, there's a very important place for uh, doing inner work with the challenges that come up. That's the theme. Next time we'll look at uh, integrating <coughs> the inner work with outer response. And do we have someone at this point? Nancy, it looks like. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you, Donald. I know that I'm supposed to put my own oxygen mask on before I put the mask on someone else, but I'm wondering if you have any suggestions about how to deal with someone else who is consistently judgmental. Um, how do you respond when someone is being consistently and repeatedly judgmental? You could probably talk for days about that, but what, what would be a skillful way of dealing with that? Yeah, that's that's more of the focus of next time, but I'll, I'll be brief in, okay. in, in, my, in, my, in my response. Yeah, um, but part of it would be to um, part of it would be to do in, in relation to today I'll say a little bit about the outer response but I think to see such situations like that as um, inviting this in, this integration of inner and outer work especially if it's a you know kind of a longer term relationship right and so do your own inner work with what your own, experiences of having the other person be judgmental towards you. What gets triggered in you, for example, because to the extent that you're triggered or reactive, you won't be able to uh, be fully responsive to that person. And so there's a very important place for your own inner work. Um, and so that's you know what we're looking for ultimately is to get to a place where, where we can be responsive in the moment in that situation. Often that takes a certain amount of inner work just to get there. So again, the, you know, what I'm going to be suggesting next time is that we combine inner work and outer work. It's not like, you know, I could give you uh, form, in a formulaic way, here are some skillful things to do with people who are very judgmental towards you. That leaves out the inner response. Right? And I'm suggesting we want both. So we can be formulaic and do skillful things uh, in relation to others. Uh, but the key is going to be, where am I coming from? You know, am I coming from a balanced place? Or am I reactive and judgmental towards you being judgmental? <laughs> right? Which is very common. I've, I've had a close relationship where that was our you know, I think every relationship has what I call uh, a basic uh, dysfunctional dynamic. Hopefully, functional dynamics, many. But there are dysfunctional dynamics as well. And, and in this relationship, our dysfunctional dynamic was this person was judgmental towards me. I thought first. I became judgmental towards the other person for being judgmental towards me. And, you know, where did that lead? for quite a long time. And in fact, we couldn't get out of it, right? And so, so I'm coming back to that point about the, um, the inner response. Some of what you could do outside of that being very, very helpful. And then a lot of it's going to depend on the context of the relationship. And 
if you have a history where you've talked about being judgmental, which is best case scenario, then maybe it just takes the reminder. You know, I have a friend, we have very close relation. And if I say something, she will often say, you know, Donald, that feels kind of judgmental. Because of the context of the relationship, I can look at myself and acknowledge, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, right? And it's cleaned up pretty quickly, but that's all because of the relationship, right? And so if we don't have, if we have a different context where we haven't had those kind of discussions, it's a little different. So maybe I'll save the rest of the response till next time, but that's a start. Thanks, Nancy. Okay, great. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, Donald, we do have some questions that came in via the private chat. Sure. Uh, and if I may, they connect to one another, so I'll tag them together. The, okay. It starts out, in these difficult times, I'm more prone than usual to trauma reactivation. Can you say more about how to be mindful about that in the moment? And then kind of connected to that, can you elaborate a bit more on what to do if the intensity is very high? Nine to ten. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, I, I went through the training with somatic experiencing and particularly with a trainer named Steve Hoskinson. And he had a very kind of simple, elegant model which uh, for, for working with trauma. And it looks something like this. Can you see the lines? Carlita, can you see the lines easily there? So basically, this is a model of potential traumatic activation. And there's a threshold area, uh, the horizontal line. And when, you know, basically when we go beyond that horizontal line, uh, we're lost. And so what we want to do is know our own patterns of traumatic activation very well. And as much as possible, notice the activation when it's lower on the curve. And we want to, if possible, find ways to deactivate lower on the curve. As we get closer here, then what we, you know, then, you know, what we do is very different. When we're over that line, we basically just want to somehow get out of it. Sometimes it's just a matter of time, but definitely we should pull back from interaction. Um, but if we get skilled with this, we can actually know our own patterns of activation with mindfulness and actually do things that help us to deactivate uh, before it gets to that sort of danger area. So that's, um, that's one perspective. What can we do? Again, we want to have um, individual ways, sort of have a repertoire of deactivating. I mentioned some of them. Bring your attention to something beautiful. That usually can deactivate. The, open your eyes if you have your eyes closed. Uh, open your eyes, look around, focus on something beautiful. Bring the attention into the feet, the hands, the extremities. Um, you know, could be could be talking with a friend and so forth. Those are some of the basics for uh, for deactivating. But the key is going to be to uh, study one's own patterns of activation and have enough mindfulness so you know where you are and know when you're getting close to it. Just to do whatever you can not to further activate. So it could be as much as possible not to think further ask for help. And if we have 
significant residues of trauma. We want to do long-term work maybe with someone who, who is a guide, a helper, a mentor, a therapist to, to continue doing that work. Maybe I can bring in a little bit more on that next time. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a big area. That's just the beginning. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Donald, if you have time for one more, it looks as though Rosie uh, okay. Strickland would like to ask a question. Sure. She's having a time with her Zoom hand, though. So, Rosie, if you'd like to go ahead and uh, feel free to unmute yourself, you can ask a question. Okay. Hi, Donald. You hi, know, hi, I Rosie. completely identified. I, I remember last week you talking about your retreat with anger, and then I was interested this week to hear you talk about dealing with fear for a week. And that yeah. is what I have dealt with this last week is just, I've never in my life been so sort of distraught. Um, and, you know, I know it was a real reaction, reactivity, way out of proportion, but um, I was hiking with my grandkids and, uh, you know, my husband and my son and wife and a rattlesnake bit their dog. Mm. And this was, um, it'll be two weeks ago last, this coming Saturday. And the dog has been, you know, on the verge of death, you know, with blood transfusions and, you know, just um, sort of, uh, you know, and I um, listened today when you were talking about taking what's important out of something. Okay, well, you need to be, a certain fear of snakes keeps you safe. But I really um, am going to have to go back, I think, and look at this week to see how, you know, distressed I was, my body. I mean, the bottom line as a grandparent is you really don't want to be responsible for killing your grandkids' dog, (laughs) or that they could have gotten bitten. You know, it's just a a real trauma terror there. So I don't know. I'm so happy you brought up fear, and I'm going to try to go to your talk about it because, um, and also, you know, there's just so much fear lately with COVID, and I have relationships that have um, gotten off track because they weren't afraid at all and didn't wear masks. And I, so there's just so much there to look at. And I never knew I was a fearful person. You know, I just, <laughs> but all of a sudden here it is, it's all come up. So I really appreciate you addressing it. And um, I think that it's something big that I've never known about myself. So I'm going to thank you for all your yeah. wisdom. Thanks, Rosie, for being being willing to share some of the the details. How many could uh, relate in some ways? Have had something like similar experiences? Some, you know, in some way, right? So, Rosie, uh, look around. Do you see the people with the hands up? Oh. <laughs> okay, that's important. So it's it's pretty. What that means is it's uh, this is part of the human condition, and it's not. Um, it's not just about you. It's just something that's very, very shared. It actually is helpful to even to talk to people and hear, oh, this was my similar experience, right? Or there's this uh, experience similar to that. 
Uh, and so if you can, uh, I think again, that combination of practices, uh, I think to bring in the heart practices, maybe particularly compassion, to hold this with compassion, this was a very hard experience. You know, you, uh, uh, you know, th that three-step uh, Kristen Neff compassion practice. Number one, this is hard. This is, that was really hard for me. Number two, part of the human condition, as we just saw. And number three, to offer a supportive or kind uh, set of words to oneself. That, that can be a good practice or whatever of the heart practices, maybe loving kindness or forgiveness would be very, very helpful. So there's a whole place for the heart practices here. There's a place also if you want to bring a mindfulness, even go back and be with some of what you were experiencing. Just notice the dynamics of fear. I think what particularly uh, struck out for me was that there's a, there could be a tendency to go to a narrative. You know, this was my fault, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's very important to see because that will, that will, uh, if you seize on that, that will do its number, right? So be. I, I also felt um, I had a friend this week who lost her mother. Her mother died, yeah. and another friend whose son had an operation, a yeah. very serious operation, and I thought they are handling this much more peacefully. I've been doing meditation for all these years and here I am freaking out and I can't even handle like a dog, be, you know, and I, so I felt very much like a failure in terms of yeah. being able to keep peacefulness and <laughs> a center. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's, a, there's, I think you're hearing there's a lot there. There's, there's uh, a narrative uh different narratives uh, connected with uh, some self-judgment. And we want to, so I think compassion, really, really crucial. Um, think of that uh, unfinished poem by Mark Nepo related to what I reported from Jack Kornfield. Maybe hold this, a strong experience of fear is pointing to something I'm about to learn. Can really hold it, can hold it differently. Bring some mindfulness. Just hold yourself with a lot of care. I would say uh, be with a lot of beauty or what sort of gives you energy and inspiration also. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Rosie. And thanks again for being willing to, to share. I think, I think you're speaking for a lot of people. Yeah. How many people could feel the situation and the words being close to what you might be experiencing or thinking? Again, look, look at the gallery view, I'm seeing a lot of hands come up. Okay. That, that's important. Okay. So let's, let's just take a moment now as we're, we're finishing. We have our limits of our gathering. I'd be happy to stay for another hour or two, but people might become judgmental of me and then I'd have to. Okay. We'll see. Okay. So let's, let's just sit for a few moments and Bring to mind what was helpful or important from today. And remembering this core 
intention to connect inner practice with our relational practice, to connect our inner work, in this case with our communication, our speech practice. And set an intention for yourself for the next week if you want to set the intention to work with this in the next week. How many of you, maybe raise hands, how many of you would like to continue with this focus for the next week? Okay, great, very good. So set your intention for this next week. And again, we can bring this connection of inner work and outer response to our relationships also to the larger world. So remember that, that there is a place for inner work in relationship to what may be difficult, challenging, lead to reactivity in relation to the larger world. Again, again both inner work and outer response. So may the fruits of our time together be there for us, be there for those in our lives, in our own circles. And then may we offer the benefits of our time together out beyond our own circles, out into the wider world for the benefit of all, which then circles back and includes us. So thank you so much. Again, good to see uh, familiar faces and uh, to be continued. And if you'd like, we can, uh, Carlita, you could unmute people. We can stay on and we have this little thing where we say goodbye to each other or hello and goodbye if you'd like to. Okay. Everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, so Donald. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, Carlita. You're welcome. Thank My you, pleasure. Carlita. Really. My pleasure. Carlita. Wonderful, pleasure. wonderful Thank support. You. Thank you so much. So glad you all came. Thank you so much for being here. And for those of you that are still here, if you missed any of the prior talks, I put a direct link uh, to Donald's oh. amazing talks right there in the chat. So Wonderful. you can Thank you. catch up between now and next Wednesday. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Thank everybody. you, Donald. Thanks, everyone. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So much.